0: king is alive today, huh? All right, we're in 1 Thessalonians, and I am pumped. I am pumped to be in a book written by Paul. I love Proverbs. I love preaching Paul, so this is good. This is good. I'm excited. So 1 Thessalonians 2, if you want to make your way there while you're going there, um, let me just share a little bit about a Uh, circumstance i had recently my my friend and i our wives were going to a women's retreat so we were like you know what let's band together well i don't know about party but let's (laughs) let's band together because uh we've got kids and we got to survive so um we did what what anyone would do and ordered some casey's pizza and when we got it um this is it lacked uh mozzarella and marinara um, so, you know, when life gives you lemons, we, uh, we just got some shredded cheese out, and marinara, and the kids didn't know the difference. They were in the oven. It's fine. Um, we had a different pizza for us, so it was all good. So, and that one turned out just fine, the, the good old brisket pizza. But um, it was missing two main ingredients, um, which is a big deal for pizza. You can go back. We don't need to go there yet, um, which is a big deal. So we live in an age of skepticism. And if you think of it like this, so people are always asking, you know, what is your angle, or at least in, in their minds, they're going, what, so what's this guy's angle, right? What, can, can, can this person really be trusted? Like you, you, you check out somewhere and they're like, hey, you know, do you have a rewards program? No, I don't. Well, if you sign up for a rewards program, you can get 40% off and then there's all these catches, right? But, it, and and I, or at least that's my thought right away, is oh, no, I don't want that. You're gonna, you're gonna nickel and dime me somewhere else, right? Uh, So we live in an age of skepticism, and people are quick to question and quick to discredit people, especially followers of Jesus. People are quick to question and discredit our motives, and we need a ministry to this world that's dripping with two main ingredients, and those ingredients are being relational and being genuine. Failure to include these ingredients is much like giving them a pizza. We don't go there yet, please. <laughs> You're giving away my stuff. Is much like, is much like, I, I just lost it. We'll be, we'll be fine. But uh, you got to be genuine, got to be relational, just like you need mozzarella, you need sauce. You guys get the point. Okay, so Paul is going to show us these two main ingredients in 1 Thessalonians 2. So let's get into the scripture here. So, First Thessalonians two verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive, instead, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you. That we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden uh, to any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So two main ingredients for effective ministry we see here through Paul's example, and the first one is he's genuine. Now what does it mean, and what does it look like to be genuine? What we see here right away in verses 1 and 2 means being resilient. Resilient. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you is not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we are emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. See, these Thessalonians were undoubtedly tempted to doubt Paul and doubt their whole faith. See, Paul planted this church in Thessalonica and then had to leave abruptly because they literally were going to kill him. And he hadn't returned yet. So certainly, unbelievers were chirping in these Thessalonian believers' ears going, hey, you should doubt Paul. What he told you was a lie. Don't believe him. There were also Jewish leaders that felt threatened by this church, that felt threatened by Christians because very selfishly they were like, you know what, they're stealing people. From our flock. So they're stealing people from Judaism. So that means they're gonna be tithing less, which means we're gonna get less money. So like we can't have this happen on our watch. So they were seeking to discredit the source of their faith, which was Paul, or at least the, the 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 conduit to which the gospel came, which was Paul. So they're trying to discredit him at all costs. And Paul here is defending his ministry to help strengthen their faith in God Himself. So Paul appeals in verse 1 to the results of his ministry to them. It's like he's saying to them, hey, look around. Many of you believe. Many people are following Christ. Don't let other people cause you to doubt what you've experienced firsthand. And then in verse 2, he appeals to his own resilience. It's, It's like he's saying, hey, if I was trying to manipulate you or trick you for selfish gain, I would have quit after the hardship I experienced in Philippi. You see, Paul was going from town to town, sharing the good news of Jesus with everyone. He was a missionary, right? So he's in Philippi, he plants a church there, then he goes to Thessalonica. Now, if Paul was doing this for selfish gain, he would have quit after Philippi because it was terrible in Philippi. And he alludes to it, and they already knew about it, but maybe you're not familiar. So I want to read Acts 16, starting in verse 16 to you. Hear what happened to Paul in Philippi. Acts 16, 16, it's on the screen for you. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, and she made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, "'These men who are proclaiming to you "'a way of salvation are the servants "'of the Most High God.'" She did this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed. So turning to to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. And when her owners realized that her hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. I mean, this was intense. Paul and Silas are severely flogged for casting out a demon in Jesus' name in Philippi. Now, if you're not familiar with flogging, not to get too graphic, but it is a whip with several strands with pieces of glass and a rock at the end of it. And this is what happened to Jesus before he was crucified as well. And this is what happened to them. So they would whip them and pull it. And you can just imagine from there This is what happened to them. And then they're thrown into jail. Now, the rest of the story is that God miraculously frees them from prison, which is quite incredible in and of itself. You can take a look at that on your own. But if Paul was not genuine in his motives to do ministry, he would have quit at that point. Anyone would have. But instead, he goes to the next town because he knew that what he had to share with them was absolutely right and true and good and nothing was going to stop him. See, it's one thing to trick someone into believing something. It's another thing to suffer greatly for that very belief and then get up and continue to share that belief with someone else. See, Paul knew the good news of Jesus was more important than his very life. So nothing was going to stop him. So he keeps going and he goes to Thessalonica. So Paul is resilient. His resilience in face of extreme hardship. To bring the gospel to the Thessalonians shows how genuine and real Paul's ministry was. And it shows how genuine and real Jesus himself is. Secondly, we see that he was genuine through his pure motives. Verse 3, it says, For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. He had pure motives. There's no impure intentions here. He says not from error, impurity, or intent to deceive. Paul's motives were genuinely pure. Ministry that's genuine has pure motives. It's not to try to get something out of it selfishly. It's not to use people for your own gain or for your own comfort. It's not to manipulate people to gain status or popularity, but rather it's to genuinely point people to Jesus for his glory, not your own. But how do we know that Paul had pure motives? Just because Paul says, hey, I had pure motives, doesn't mean that he had pure motives. That's exactly what someone tried to trick you would would say, right? Hey, I had pure motives. How do we know that? Well, verse 4 and the following are evidences of his pure motives. So verse 4, we know he has pure motives because he was was fearing God. He did this for an audience of one. Verse 4, instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. He was God-fearing, not people-fearing. See, Paul was completely in submission to God, Not people. It says he was approved by God, which means his ministry had God's stamp of approval on it. It says he was entrusted with the gospel, which means he he didn't just have the stamp of approval by God. His ministry was given to him by God himself. And then he says he did it to please God who examines his heart. Ministry success for Paul was determined by God, not by people and their reactions. Paul was not ultimately doing ministry to serve other people. He was doing ministry to serve God himself because he is the author, He's the sustainer, he is the judge of any ministry. So Paul was genuinely pure in his motives because he cared more about what God thought than what others thought about him and his message. See, this, this is where Paul's boldness comes from. This is where Paul's power and effectiveness came from. He was steered, and he was motivated, and he was moved by God, not by his audience. Fast forward to today. Why are churches closing their doors at an alarming rate in the U.S.? I think a big reason is because pastors, leaders, and whole denominations of churches are compromising and telling people what they want to hear. And in so doing, they're taking the power of God out of their ministry. God, help us have a ministry here at Stonebridge, but not just here at our church. In, God, help you have a ministry in your own homes, in your own workplaces, in your own spheres of influence, whoever you're around. God, help us have a ministry that is steered and is motivated and moved by God and His Word not by a culture that doesn't give a rip about God. Why would we be steered by that? We want to be moved and motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit. An effective ministry is genuine and pure because it's done for an audience of one. And that was Paul, God-fearing, not people-fearing. Another evidence of Paul's pure motives here, he was God-fearing, he was honest, verse five. For we never use flattering speech, as you know, Or had greedy motives, God is our witness. He was honest. He wasn't people-pleasing. He wasn't flattering. Now, it was common in this culture, in this Greek culture in Thessalonica, to, to flatter people in order to get money. And that hasn't changed, has it? Right? Just tell people what they want to hear so we can get an extra buck. But Paul insists here that he didn't use flattery. And he wasn't doing it for the money. He wasn't doing it for greedy motives. And they were sharing honestly with the Thessalonians. See, Paul shared with people not just the easy to hear stuff, but the hard truth as well. And that is the gospel message. It's good news and bad news. And Paul shared both. See, the bad news is that we're sinful, we're selfish, and we're headed to hell. But the good news is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if we trust in him, We can have eternal life with him. See, but you don't need that good news if there's no bad news. It's real tempting to just share the good news, but it makes no sense without the bad news. And Paul shares all of the gospel, the good, the bad. He wasn't flattering. He was honest. Nothing tests motives like having to share hard truth with people. If you have bad motives, you'll conveniently leave out the hard stuff. But if you have pure motives like Paul did, You'll boldly declare the whole truth, even if people don't like you for it. that's what Paul did. So he's honest. Next we see that he was humble. Verse 6. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. See, he was humble. He wasn't attention-seeking. He wasn't sharing the gospel so others would say, Paul, good job. Wow. You're really going for it. No, he didn't care if he got the credit. He didn't want it. It wasn't about him. It was about him. He was humble. Another evidence of Paul's pure motives is he was sacrificial. Jump down to verse 9. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we, we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. He was sacrificial specifically. He's talking about here not being a burden financially. Now we learn in Acts 18 verse 3, that Paul was a tent maker. Now, that's not really a thing these days. I'm sure there, I mean, we have tents, so people make tents, but it was not tents like that, okay? This isn't your Coleman backyard six-person tent with the zip-up, all right? Um, this, this was hard manual labor making these tents. So you, you had to cut and shape leather, wood, twine. I mean, this is hard back-breaking work that Paul was doing, exhausting. Now, Paul could have shared the gospel and taken up an offering for his living. And and he even says that in verse 7. I I could have done that. But instead, he sacrificially worked two jobs, essentially. He was a full-time minister, full-time missionary, and a full-time tent maker. Now, why did Paul not accept money from them? One, he knew that's, he would just invite all sorts of skepticism from the Thessalonian culture if he did that. Because that's what people would do. Like I said earlier, they'd come in and they'd, they'd say things just to try to get money. And he's like, I don't want to put that stumbling block before these people. Secondly, his tent-making business undoubtedly gave him a lot of natural opportunities to share Christ with people that he wouldn't have had if he didn't have that ministry. So people come in to purchase tents, and he can, he, can, uh, he can share the gospel with them right there in a natural relationship. Also, he was a missionary bringing the gospel to a place for the first time. See, we fund missionaries as a church so that people can bring the gospel to others, perhaps for the first time, and we fund these missionaries so they can be freed up to share Christ, and there's no stumbling block for other people going, man, are you just doing this to get money out of us? And we want to be like, no, 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 no. We want to help fund you so you can go and do that, and people aren't questioning your motives. You can just go for it. The goal here, though, was just not to dilute the gospel message. And the way um, a way that we seek not to dilute the gospel message here at Stonebridge. And you've maybe noticed it if you've been around here. We haven't, I, d- I don't think we've addressed it a whole lot, but we don't pass the plate on Sunday morning and go, all right, it's time for you to give your money, pay up. You know, <laughs> not that, not the churches that do that are saying that, right? I think it's good hearted. Um, but we do have, we have subtle boxes in the back and you can give online and that's great. But why don't we do that? Because we don't want someone walking in here. Go in, they're just doing it for the money. Instead, we want to be like, here is the good news of Jesus, free of charge, just like Jesus gave his life for us and rose from the dead and said, here's life, eternal, for free. That's why we do it. We want to be a living example on Sunday morning in our service, so if someone walks in, is skeptical about Jesus, they can go in and go, you know what, oh, wow, they really were not doing that for money. And then as people settle in and become part of the family, they then have an opportunity to joyfully, generously give their money to God. But that's between them and God. Paul was sacrificial. We too should be sacrificial in our ministry to other people. Now the big essential ingredient here that Paul uses for ministry is being genuine, but the second one is being relational, and they go hand in hand. So what does that mean? and What does that look like to be relational? Well, verse 8, he lives life with them. It says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. See, just, just bringing the truth of the gospel of Jesus to them wasn't enough for Paul. He showed them the good news of Jesus by living everyday life with them. He didn't just say, hey, God loved you so much he sent his son for your sin. No, he showed them in the flesh that God really does love them through living life with them. See, it's one thing to say God loves you. It's another thing to live life with people and display that God loves them. This verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, is the heartbeat of any ministry that I've been a part of or ever will be a part of. I've had multiple people in my life live this out with me and it has changed my whole trajectory where people are not just sharing good truths about Jesus, but instead, it's starting with my parents, in fact. Parents, youth leaders, mentors, friends. I've had lots of people come around me and not just share good, true things, but also show up at my events and go on a walk and and hang out, and watch games, and live real life with me. I had a friend in college that came up to me. I was a senior. I was about to go and and be in in full-time ministry at a church, and he said, Matt, I've just observed you, and I I, said, this verse is the heartbeat of how you do ministry. I think it should be like your verse for for anything you do in ministry. And I'm like, okay, what's that? And he read it. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you've become dear to us. And it's like God grabbed me in that moment and said, Matt, that's my heartbeat. And it's your heartbeat. Make the rest of your life about that. What a better thing to give your life to No matter where you're at. No matter what you do day to day. You don't have to be a full-time minister to do this. Everyone's called to minister to others. To give your life. Not just to talking about Jesus with others. But to showing them Jesus. To inviting them into your home. Into your life. Inviting them over. even, even Inviting them into your life. Even when it's a bit messy. Even when you're struggling a bit. Maybe especially in those moments. At Stone Ridge, this is what we're all about. If you look at the back wall right there, we're, we're trying to do this whole thing as a family of Christ by cultivating Christ-centered relationships with each other. This is it. This is where we get that. This, this verse. So from day one, we've sought to be a church, not a church with connection groups, but a church of connection groups. A church that values Getting together outside of this gathering right here more than what we're doing right here. Because that's where real life is lived. We bought a home here in Boone with a large dining living room for this very purpose. We didn't buy it so that our kids could have a large place to run around in, although that is nice. We did it so that we could do ministry there with ease. It's my favorite place to do ministry. Our home for a while program. So we have a residential house across the street. And, and guys, one at a time, come in and, and live there for four months to try to help them get back on, back on their feet physically and spiritually. And here's the thing. We could just go around and share the good news of Jesus with the poor and down and out without giving them a place to live. You, you definitely can do that. There are whole ministries that do that, Right? But we just decided we want to live life alongside the Roberts and the Codys. We don't, we, want to, we don't want them to just hear about the extravagant grace and love of God. We want them to experience the extravagant grace and love of God from our church family. We want to live out 1 Thessalonians 2.8 with these guys. Many of you are part of that. See, I think... What this is teaching us is that both getting together for a Bible study and getting together for a Super Bowl party are essential to sharing Christ. As you live life with other people, you, you see how Christ can be the center of every part of your life. So Paul was relational. He lived life with them. Next, he, he cared deeply for them like a mother cares for her kids. Verse 7, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own nurtures her own mother or her own children. A better translation of this is as a nursing mother rather than nurse. So think about a nursing mother with her newborn baby. It takes patience. Many of you have experienced this. It takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes the baby cries and fights the process. Often it's at inconvenient times, like the middle of the night. It takes tenderness, it takes gentleness. This is what effective relational ministry looks like like a mother nursing her newborn baby. It takes patience. Often, especially when they're just thinking about coming to know Christ or first coming to know Christ, it's often one step forward, two steps back. It takes a lot of patience. takes a lot of time. There's no shortcuts around that. If we really want to help people grow in Christlikeness, it takes a lot of time with people. They're often discouraged. They're often doubting. They're often wanting to quit. It takes a tremendous amount of gentleness, a tremendous amount of tenderness. Growing in Christlikeness takes a steady, faithful, patient hand. So we care for people deeply like a mother cares for her children. Secondly, we care for them deeply like a father cares for his children. Verses 11 and 12, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The care of a father is similar to but different than a care of a mother. It says he encouraged them, so he put courage in them. That's what it means to encourage someone. You're going, you're doing great. Keep it up. There's nothing like having a dad saying that to a child. Keep it up. You're doing awesome. It says he encouraged them. He comforted them. The Thessalonians were definitely facing hardship and persecution. Persecution. And Paul came around them and goes, you know what, Jesus is with you, don't give up, it will all be worth it. But he didn't stop there, he encouraged them, he comforted them, and he implored them. Like any good father, Paul sometimes got firm and direct with these Thessalonians. Just like any good dad, at times, has to get firm and direct with their kids. He goes, you you must walk the walk, you must walk obediently and live for Jesus in this it will all be worth it but you must do this effective ministry involves relationally caring deeply like a mother and like a father and lastly you live relationally by setting a godly example verse 10 you are witnesses and so is God of how devoutly righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers Actions speak louder than words, don't they? Effective ministry must be lived in and lived out in front of them first. It's much like parenting, right? If you tell your kids, hey, you really need to love Jesus and pray and read your Bible and make church a priority, and then they never see you making church a priority or, or praying or reading your Bible, what are you telling them? You're saying this is really important, but they're going, that's not really important at all. Effective ministry must be lived in and lived out in front of them first. You can't ask someone to go somewhere you haven't been yourself. People are going to see through that in a heartbeat. You must set an example. Now last thought I want to share with you this morning. Ministry is not just for full-time ministers like me. Ministry simply means this. It means serving others in Jesus' name. Serving others in Jesus' name. If you follow Jesus, this is your call. To serve others in the name of Jesus. And this starts at home. This is your first and primary ministry. It means your workplace is your ministry. It means anywhere where you interact with other people on a regular basis. Your relational sphere of influence. That's your ministry. Your church family is your ministry. What the world needs now is genuine relational ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Your kids, your spouse probably don't need more Bible verses read to them. They need more Bible verses genuinely lived out in front of them. Genuine, relational. Your coworkers probably don't need you to wear another Jesus t shirt on Monday. They need, you to, they need to see more of what Jesus looks like, lived out in your character and in your speech in front of them at your workplace. Genuine, relational. Your church family doesn't need more fake smiles and pretending it's all good when it's not. They need more genuine confession of sin and sharing honestly of struggles on the journey. The world needs people right now more than ever living out 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. Now we have an opportunity this morning to celebrate The most genuine relational person of all time. So if you'll take the communion under your seats. And you want to open up the bread. I want to read from Philippians 2 for you. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Here's his attitude. He existed in the form of God. And did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about it. Jesus could have come as a full-grown man, died that day, and rose from the dead to take care of our sin problem. But instead he humbled himself. And came as a man. And experienced hardship and temptation like you and I do. And lived out as an example the most genuine relational life ever lived. And he got close to especially to 12 men that he shared his very life with. And lived out 1 Thessalonians 2.8 with. So as we take the bread in a second, this represents Jesus' body that was ripped apart for our sin. But before Jesus' body was ripped apart, that same body lived the perfect example of a relational ministry. As you take this in your heart, thank Jesus for being your closest Friend. Say, Jesus, thank you for being my closest friend. And the juice represents Jesus' blood that was poured out instead of ours on the cross. It should have been ours. But before Jesus' blood, it was spilled, it coursed through. The veins of the most genuine and relational and purely motivated human being that ever lived. So as you take this, thank Jesus for being your trustworthy Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being our closest friend and being our trustworthy Savior. You are the epitome of what it looks like to, to have a genuine and relational...